1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three things, but the greatest of these is love. When our wedding day has come and gone, and we are now living with our new spouse, life will change in many areas. In some areas, the changes can be welcome, such as having a companion, a partner in life to share our experiences with, and other areas we may find the change less welcome. My privacy is now gone. I have to change the way I do certain things, and I don't like it. My decor in my house has to change because it is our house now. And while I may be able to put some of these changes aside, others may be a nuisance and time does not necessarily change them. This is a great time to exercise your communication skills that you have worked hard on developing, preparing for marriage. Talking about your feelings and getting on the same page while doing it sensitively can straighten out many things that if left unchecked may gnaw at a person from the time they get married until they die. And this is where scripture becomes so important in marriage. And a great chapter to really study and pray for the ability to obey is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the famous love chapter. And it may have been referred to at your wedding. But what many overlook is not the fact that God says love is patient, love is kind, etc. But what's at the end of the chapter? And I believe these final two verses are every bit as vital in our journey with Jesus as the preceding verses. Think about the time when Paul wrote this letter. Mirrors were not the same as we have now. Many times they were merely polished metal. And what you saw in the polished surface was not a true reflection of yourself. It was a distorted reflection. Or as it says in this version, it was a dim reflection. And this is our earthly perspective of the things of God. We don't have a perfect understanding of God's love or the spiritual realities of our universe. We have a distorted view of them because we don't have all the information. We can't see things crystal clear. Rather, we see them dimly. And since our perspective is limited to our own understanding on how things are, we must seek God and His reality if we want to see things more clearly. And when we transition from mortality to immortality, we will know things clearly even as we have been fully known, as it says. In other words, God fully knows me, knows everything about me. Well, we're going to have that kind of knowledge. But for the time being, with our dim perspective and a new spouse, we begin to live our lives together as husband and wife, and we find out very quickly something very irritating. Our perspectives are very different. And despite hearing that opposites attract, and that's a good thing because it provides the necessary balance in a relationship, but conflict now occurs. And students of scripture may have heard verses like Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. And Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So the idea that at times we need the other person to have a positive impact on our life, but do we consider that our spouses are that positive influence? Are we allowing ourselves to be sharpened by the friction in our marriage? And are we grateful for our spouse when they rebuke us? Or do we get angry and think to ourselves, you know, how dare you treat me like that? We are now at a spiritual crossroad. Do we, as 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Do we take that road when we're now in conflict? When our perspectives collide, okay, I need to pray, I need to seek his face, I need to turn from my wickedness, and I'm going to hear from heaven, and I'll be forgiven if I need to be forgiven in this area. 
and I'll have some healing coming. Do we go that way or do we go the opposite way and say it's all their fault, not my fault? And we just keep on grieving because we're not getting our way. This is what is called godly sorrow or godly grief in the scriptures, depending on what translation you use. When we are sorrowful or full of sorrow and we humble ourselves and pray and turn from our wicked ways, we exercise godly sorrow. That is, I'm sorry that I am at odds with God and I need to make it right. I need to put myself in my place so that I can hear from heaven. And then there's resolution available. God will come and he will do the healing and he will do the reconciling. And that's the benefit of godly sorrow when we're convicted. That's what we do. Whereas worldly sorrow or worldly grief, when I'm simply feeling sorry for myself because someone is depriving me of my desires, that produces a long, bitter life where since we can't get over ourselves, our relationships suffer to the point where they just simply die because of bitterness, that bitter root that grows deep. And this happens in marriages all the time. And Paul hits on this in 2 Corinthians 7.10. It says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And a good example of this is Peter and Judas. Both of them betrayed Jesus. Both of their offenses were on the same level. Both felt terrible and suffered for their betrayal. Peter wanted reconciliation, so he wanted to make it right with God, but didn't know how. Judas just wanted the pain to stop. And Peter, he stayed in the loop of the apostles. He didn't want to leave. He knew, I need to come back. And Jesus ultimately restored him, where Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? For Peter's three times where he denied Jesus. And then Judas, he just killed himself. Peter had godly sorrow, which brought about salvation without regret. Judas had worldly sorrow, which basically produced death. And understanding this may help reconcile feelings of anger, resentment, bitterness toward our spouses as time goes on, while the other will simply allow those feelings to linger, ultimately suffocating the relationship to death. And there's a lot of marriages that are still intact physically, but they're dead emotionally. And that's not where we want to be. That's not a marriage. That's a prison. So for newly married couples dealing with animosity towards spouses now, in these early years, This is the time to bring about that healing and bring about that understanding so it doesn't grow and you don't have to spend the next 50 years hating each other. And so how do we do that? Well, let's revisit 1 Corinthians 13, 12, which we read at the beginning. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully be known, even as I have been fully known. We got to understand that our perspective towards life and everything in it is not perfect. It's limited. So accepting the fact that we don't know everything, that's a good place to start. I don't know everything. And since I don't know everything, that means there's a lot in my life that I don't have a clue how it works or what it is, why it's the way it is, or if it's really good or bad. I'm ignorant in a lot of areas. So knowing that, if I admit that and I understand that, and I accept the fact that I don't have all the information then the thing that bothers me may not be bad at all. There may be a reason why these things are the way they are. I must admit, if I don't have all the information, then the thing that's driving me crazy in my marriage with my spouse, it may not be that bad. I may just need to tweak my perspective a little bit because there may be a reason my spouse is acting this way. Think about this concept, and I'm going to use sex as the topic to explore this reality of not knowing everything and having a different perspective because you and your spouse have completely different perspectives. Okay, so just think about a couple and their sexual relationship. Each one has a perspective that has been forged throughout their life on what is good and what is not good, what is exciting, what is not exciting, what is allowable, and what is not. Is it any wonder that there are things that spouses are not on the same page on? Why? 
because our perspective is developed over time where our values, our experiences, our feelings, our societal norms, our circle of influence, all of these things and more, they factor into forging our perspective and they're different for everybody. Not to mention how we process our personality, our temperament, our religious beliefs or lack of. So if my spouse has a completely different perspective then it's not going to be in sync with mine at every level. A person can convince themselves that their spouse is not interested. They don't care about the needs of the spouse, because if they did, things would be different. And I believe this is a road a lot of people go down. Or I can put the scriptures into play and humble myself, pray about it, exercise love, and pursue an understanding so that we can work through this issue and find resolution. So you take the plunge, you open up a conversation, you say, hey, I want to talk about this and you find out your spouse is very uncomfortable with discussing the topic. What now? Well, I've done my part. Can I go back to blaming them? No. You work toward earning that trust so that your spouse may share their heart with you. Because some of those things that are private, they want to keep private. Let's say you do this, and your spouse opens up to you about their sexual perspective. And now you find out what influenced them in their sexuality throughout their life. And it wasn't good. Sexual abuse, derogatory comments about their body, creating a self-image problem. They may experience physical discomfort during sex. They may find sex with their spouse is not that good. The other spouse may have bad breath or body odor. The other spouse may not be able to tap into their emotions during sex, which makes them feel like a dumping ground for lust. And you just got married. You got a few years left in the battle. What do you do? Well, you can go for marital counseling if you can find a decent marital counselor. And a word of caution, just because an agency has a religious name doesn't mean they'll impart God's truth. Take heed. There has been some of the most horrible, worldly, wicked advice coming from counseling services that have a religious name to it. Be careful. Also, church leaders are not all good at marital counseling. And there's some who are gifted in it, and they do a good job. And two things will happen if you go to them. Number one, they will start with your relationship with Jesus first. That's the foundation. And if that's all screwed up, no matter how much counseling you go for, it's not going to fix your problem until you get that problem fixed. The second thing is, they're going to tell you things about yourself you don't want to hear. Like you need sacrificial and unconditional love towards your spouse. Because that's God's love. That's God's agape love. That unconditional and sacrificial love. And if you can't demonstrate this, don't expect the promises for the believers in scriptures to come upon your marriage. And this is what we need to hear. And realistically, most people don't want to hear this. They want to justify themselves and point the blame on their spouses. But if you want to skip all this, then simply go to the Lord in prayer. And remember, prayer is aligning my will with God's will. That's where it starts. I have to be in God's will. That's the idea of prayer. Lord, your will be done like Jesus taught the disciples. Give glory to God first, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the way you start your prayers. God, you deserve worship, you deserve praise, and your will is what I seek. First John five fourteen, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So in any situation, in marriage or anywhere else in life, if we are more concerned with God's will in our lives than the issue itself, we will be assured God's hearing me. He hears my cry. And in marriage, so many times we want our spouses to conform to our will, not God's. And that's why many times our prayers are not answered. We must get our will in sync with God's will. And we do that by putting on Christ and putting off the old man or the old woman, living godly and not worldly, living sacrificially, not selfishly. Read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through chapter 3, verse 7. Peter explains the greater role of each spouse in marriage that wants the blessing of God. Verse 7 
of chapter 3 being the key. And this is referring to the husband's responsibility, but it's the last part of this verse that makes a profound statement in a believer's marriage. It says in 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel or more sensitive. Don't treat her like a guy. Treat her sensitively. That's what that means. It's not saying she's weak. It means that guys need to be sensitive towards her wife. Anyway, this is the part of the verse I want to focus on. Since they, that's the wife, are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So let's break this down. Believers are heirs of the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus. Those who serve our king, Jesus, by obeying him and his word, they inherit the kingdom. He's the king, we're his royal subjects, and we inherit the kingdom by becoming his royal subjects through faith. And we not only inherit eternal life, but we also inherit an abundant life of peace and grace in this life which is being blessed when we don't deserve it. That's what grace means. Grace is a very serious word in the New Testament. It is that unmerited favor that God pours upon his people. We don't deserve the good things that we get, but God gives them to us anyway because he is good. And it's a good deal for the believer. And I can have peace and receive good things I don't deserve because I love Jesus and I follow and obey him. That's a win. But wait, there's more. When we honor the Lord and are treating our spouses with the love of God, laid out in this passage, as well as other passages, then we can expect God to hear our prayers. Again, we're aligning ourselves with God's will. When we don't care about God's will, we're just more selfish and say, God, would you fix my spouse? It's like, no, you're on the wrong trail, man. Get back on this narrow, difficult road that leads to eternal life, and then we'll talk. As for now, your prayers are hindered because you're being disobedient. So meditate on this for a moment. If I'm at odds with my spouse, and it's my fault, my prayers are hindered, God's not going to listen to me. So if I'm having a fight with my wife, and at work there's drama going on, I'm like, oh God, please, can you use me in this situation to, you know, to deal appropriately with this drama? God's like, your prayers are hindered because you're not being nice to your wife. You're not taking care of business. And the same goes for the wife. If she's not right with the husband, and she's in a, a place where she's praying to God for something to happen, it's like, I'm sorry, your prayers are hindered because you're not doing what I've asked you to do. It's as if God is saying, take care of your business with your spouse first, and then I'll listen to your prayers. If you're not right with your spouse, and you can do something about it according to the word, and you don't, then you're not right with God, and your prayers are hindered. I call that a wilderness experience where life is miserable and nothing seems to make me happy, and I know this one pretty well. The example being the Exodus where they were right on the verge of the promised land. God's like, here it is, man. I've laid it out for you. All you have to do is trust me and move forward into it. And they go, nah, I don't want to do that. Okay, stay in the wilderness for 40 years. And that didn't work out well for them. But it was a miserable place to be. And all they had to do was just say, yes, Lord, I'll do what you have called me to do. So learn these principles, work towards understanding and respecting your spouse's perspective. And don't let up. Make this a part of your life. Keep moving forward in your relationship with Jesus and your spouse, and you'll be blessed. Thank you.